Please open your Bibles to the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 27. Look at verse 1, please. And thou shalt make an altar of sheet and wood, five cubits long and five cubits broad. The altar shall be four square, and the height thereof shall be three cubits. So the first thing you would see if you were to walk into the tabernacle, also called the tent, the house of the Lord, would be an altar. You would see an animal. You would see fire. And that pictures, first and foremost, God's thoughts about sin and the consequences of sin. It's also a picture of the judgment seat of Christ, where the works are going to be burnt up. And finally, it's a picture of the great white throne judgment. Everlasting fire, absolutely terrifying. Paul says it's a terror of the Lord. Second Corinthians chapter 5, we persuade men that we must all appear before the judgment seats of the Lord. And thou shalt make an altar, a physical altar, of sheet and wood, acacia wood, five cubits long, five cubits is around seven feet, and five cubits broad, five cubits wide, also being seven feet, so seven by seven. The altar shall be four square, going back to John nineteen twenty-three, They would take his garments, split it into four parts. Everything in the Old Testament points to the New Testament. And the height thereof shall be three cubits, it's four feet of course. So it really comes down to this. Either the animal dies in your place or you pay for the own you pay for your own sins. You die and face the Lord at the judgment. I know for here it's kind of or for now it's pretty grotesque to think of an animal being a sacrificed, not just an animal, but many animals, day and night. I uh, I heard a preacher recently say that the priests in the Old Testament were like butchers. I thought, yes, he's got that pretty much on the money. Day and night the priest would be sacrificing the animal. And for you meat eaters, you may enjoy a good meal. You may enjoy your beef, your pork, uh, your fish, or ham. But how many of you would like to get your hands on a physical animal and cut its throat, hold it down? I mean, it's easy to eat the thing, isn't it? Mm. But could you chase it down? Could you hold it down, cut its throat? Could you put it on a grill, like a barbecue grill, and grill it? Could you turn it over and over and over until it's nicely cooked, as they say? That's what you're dealing with. The animal is a picture of your sin. The Lamb of God died for the sins of the world. I'll discuss that more this morning. Look at verse 2. And thou shalt make the horns of it upon the four corners thereof. Its horns shall be of the same, and thou shalt overlay it with brass, horns. So I sat down last night, as I do every Saturday night, planning for Sunday service, trying to think these verses through. Horns. What do we know about horns? How about lambs? Do lambs have horns? Well, yes, they do. Keep your hand there and go to Genesis 22. Jesus Christ is called the Lamb of God. We all know that, of course, from John chapter 1. Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. Going back to original sin. All of our sins are traced back to Adam. And, of course, you well know that we are the only people on the face of the earth that have a saviour. Or put it this way, if we could find just one part of his body, our faith is collapsed. It's all over. That's what 1 Corinthians 15 is all about. If he hasn't been raised up from the dead we are still in our sins we would die as lost sinners of course if you could find anyone else's uh, remains it could be buddha or muhammad or anybody else for that matter it's no big deal of course but from genesis 22 uh, look at verse 8 and abraham said my son god will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering so they went both of them together he knows a lamb is going to be provided picture in Jesus Christ but it gets even better than that look at verse 13 and Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and behold behind him a ram caught in a thicket by his horns and Abraham went and took the ram and offered him for a burnt offering in the stead of his son a ram is a male sheep Jesus Christ was a male of course go to Revelation chapter 5 so like I say everything in the Old Testament points to a major event which will take place in the new testament and that major event concerns the messiah of course jesus christ is lord over the animal world that's why uh adam was able to name the animals he's also lord over mankind son of man traces him back to adam son of god traces him back to god and son of david traces him back to king david king of kings lord of lords god of gods revelation chapter 5 revelation chapter 5 and look at verse 6, if you will. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne, 
And of the four beasts, and in the midst of the eldest of the lamb, as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. Go back to the book of Exodus. So this uh, tabernacle, this altar, this place where animals would be sacrificed from evening to morning would be done first and foremost to show the Jews what Jehovah thought about sin. Every time we sin as saved people, there are consequences, of course. You reap what you sow. For the Old Testament, it was imperative for the Jews to see what the Lord thought about sin. Hence why the animal would die in the place of the sinner. It's either going to be your sins, and you pay for your sins at the judgments, or you take the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ, who covered your sins, of course. Go back to verse 1. 27, 1. And thou shalt make an altar of sheet and wood, acacia wood, good quality wood. Five cubits long and five cubits broad. The altar shall be four square. Four points, four parts, four dimensions to this altar. Going back to the four parts of the Lord's clothing, which, like I say, they would gamble for. You couldn't make this stuff up, could you? When Moses was told to write down what he would write, he had no idea that one day the Messiah would come along. He had glimpses of it, of course, as would Abraham. But he had no idea that they would be gambling for his clothing not just two parts not just three parts but four parts also going back to northeast southwest going back to how the priest when he would arrive to uh, produce or to commence the sacrifice the priest would enter from the east uh, the show bread and jesus christ is a bread of life give us our daily bread so on and so forth the show bread was on the north the candlestick light of the world the menorah was on the south and the altar of incense was on the west. You couldn't make that stuff up. You couldn't create this kind of a religion. This comes from heaven, of course. And the height thereof shall be three cubits. So it's seven by seven by four. Seven by seven by four. Two again. And thou shalt make the horns of it upon the four corners thereof. His horns. His horns. Not its horns. His horns. It's almost like it's speaking about a person. And I checked the New King James last night. It says, their horns. Doesn't help me. Their horns. His horns denotes a person. Jesus Christ is a lamb of God. A lamb, of course, is a baby sheep. But Jesus Christ was a man. When he comes back the second time, he's not coming back as a baby sheep. He's coming back as a lion. A ram as a male sheep. Jesus Christ was the lamb of God, like I say, that takes away the sin of the world. And thou shalt make the horns of it upon the four corners thereof. His horns shall be of the same, and thou shalt overlay it with brass. Brass, not gold, and brass, if you think of gold, silver, and bronze. Brass is a good substitute for bronze, and I'll discuss that more this morning. Look at verse 3. And thou shalt make his pans to receive his ashes, and his shovels, and his basins, and his flesh hooks, and his fire pans. All the vessels thereof shall be of brass. So the uh, utensils are going to be bronze, not gold. The whole altar will be bronze, like I say, not gold. Gold pictures heaven, of course, uh, deity. Silver pictures the third heaven. Purple pictures royalty. Scarlet pictures suffering. Uh, three again. And thou shalt make his pans, his pans, not its pans, but his pans to receive his ashes. You think of Catholics, Ash Wednesday, put the ashes on their foreheads. And every Catholic you speak to, and you try and challenge them in a very gentle sort of a way as to why they do what they do. They have their verses they go to, and they go, to, they go here for their justification. Of course, here it's dealing with substitutionary atonement. You weren't told to put ashes on yourself. I know they did it in Nineveh, sackcloth and ashes. When Jonah went down to preach to them, that was a one-off event, going back to John 13. Only once would the Lord wash the feet of the apostles. Never again would the apostles, or never again would that take place, never again would the apostles reenact what the Lord had done for them. And just need to clarify something that I said a couple of weeks ago concerning a Christian couple that traveled around Israel, filming some very interesting uh, sights. And I made, the, uh, I made the statement that they found the Ark of the Testimony, the Ark of the Covenants, the Tabernacle. They found a duplicate. Not the real thing, obviously. The real thing is in heaven, Revelation 11. They found a 
replica. They found something which had been copied from Exodus and built almost to its correct specification. Fascinating videos to watch, of course. And thou shalt make his pans to receive his ashes and his shovels and his basins and his flesh hooks and his fire pans and all the vessels thereof thou shalt make of brass and thou shalt make for it a great of network of brass and upon the net shalt thou make four brass and rings and the four corners thereof. It's like a barbecue grill. Again, the imagery is pretty clear. If you are a meat eater, you like to cook your animals, you like to eat them, you like to fry them. If you go back to the Old Testament, that's what they did. And you could smell the animal being burnt from outside. I guess if you lived in Poland during World War II, or Germany during World War II, they say, they've said you could smell the people burning from outside. It was in the air, it was everywhere. Human flesh being cooked. That went on day and night. The Allies knew all about it, but the Allies decided just to let it be. They wanted to leave it. They wanted to take their time with World War II. But basically, somebody is dying. Somebody is dying. Either the animal dies or you die. And that's what it comes down to. And the animal was chosen to die in the place of a sinner. Abraham saw himself a lamb. First and foremost, he knew that the Lord would provide him a lamb. And of course, he would do, not just for himself, but for all of us. He saw a ram, a male sheep, picturing the Lord Jesus Christ. Took the male sheep and sacrificed it. Islam have their sacrifices, the Jews have their sacrifices. Christianity has a one-off sacrifice. Now, people like to attack our religion, they say we are a bloodthirsty people. We are blood-bought people, bought with a price, I won't deny that, I won't shy away from that. We have a saviour who was flesh and blood, died in our place, I'm not going to shy away from that. That's a wonderful thing to preach about this morning. The Jews haven't got a saviour, the Muslims haven't got a saviour. But animal sacrifices was a typical occurrence back in the ancient world. And of course you know that Islam is a counterfeit of Judaism in a limited sense. And it's also a counterfeit of Christianity in a limited sense of course. And thou shalt make for it a grate of network of brass. And upon the net shalt thou make four brass and rings in the four corners thereof. To hold it together of course. This is the Lord's home. It's a mobile home. It's a picture of salvation today. We preach the gospel at this ministry. We preach Jesus Christ in our town. We take him into the highways and the byways. I hope you do as well. We don't keep him to ourselves. On one occasion, the Ark of the Testament was stolen, was lost actually, and the Philistines got their hands on it. And they thought Christmas had come early, and they were thanking Dagon for the capture of the Ark of the Covenants. And for a period of time, day and night, they thought they were top dog. And each morning, they saw Dagon had falling down first of all his his hands had been broken off then his feet had been broken off then i seem to recall his head was removed picturing his impotence and jehovah's omnipotence look at verse five and thou shalt put it under the compass of the altar beneath that the net may be even to the midst of the altar and thou shalt make staves for the altar staves of sheet and wood and overlay them with brass staves old english for a narrow piece of timber Noah's Ark was built using acacia wood, acacia wood, sheet and wood. And of course it was doubled up and uh, slime pitch was put on it to reinforce it. This tabernacle incidentally would have a perimeter fence to keep people out. Only the priests could, uh, could go into the Holy of Holies and intercede for the people. Today we have, a, we have a high priest who is in heaven, who intercedes for our sins. And the staves shall be put into the rings. And the stave shall be upon the two sides of the altar to bear it, to hold it. Staves, wood. Jesus Christ had a wooden cross. He carried his cross throughout the streets of Israel. They pierced my hands and my feet. The Jehovah's Witnesses think he was nailed to a tree. Well, they're partly right. It does speak about Christ dying a cursed death on a tree. Galatians uh, chapter 3 from memory. Going back to Absalom dying a cursed death. But that's what it means. To die on a tree means you died a cursed death. Christ became a curse for us. Sheet and wood, acacia wood, used for the altar, sacrificed the animal, picturing redemption. Sheet and wood, acacia wood, built the, or was used to build Noah's Ark, picture of our salvation. Eight, hollow with boards shalt thou make it, as it was showed thee in the mount, so shall they make it. Everything that Jehovah would reveal to Moses had to be copied right down to the letter. If you think about, could be World War II, for example, if you think about when Stalingrad was being strangled 
by the uh, Germans. They put one and a half million men into the Russian campaign and the Russians counteracted with around 10 million men. But what isn't so well known was during World War II how the Soviets moved 16 million men and women from parts of Moscow to Siberia and elsewhere to double, triple, quadruple the war effort. But here's the thing. They had to work to a very strict timetable. The consequences for deviating uh, from the orders from Moscow were severely uh, strict, very strict, picturing, in a sense, what the Lord would show Moses. He would anoint one of the uh, gentlemen from the tribe of Judah, and we'll look at him later, to put this into place. But basically, everything that the Lord is revealing to Moses has to be copied right down to the letter. Nine, and thou shalt make the court of the tabernacle, for the south side southward, there shall be hangs for the courts of fine twinned linen of an hundred cubits long for one side. hundred cubits long is 148 feet. And the 20 pillars thereof and their 20 sockets shall be of brass. The hooks of the pillars and their fillets shall be of silver. Silver picturing redemption and also picturing the words of the Lord. The words of the Lord are pure words. Purified in the earth seven times. And likewise, verse 11, for the north side and length there shall be hangings of an hundred cubits long, and his twenty pillars, and their twenty sockets of brass, the hooks of the pillars, and their fillets of silver. I would love to sit down with a carpenter, somebody who knows what they are doing, or a tailor or two, and ask such a person to try and recreate this. That couple in Israel, like I say, go around Israel, filming some wonderful locations, and they found a duplicate, like I say, a replica of the tabernacle fascinating to see of course for here and now uh, we don't need a physical tabernacle a physical tent our bodies are the tabernacle if you will the tents of the lord first corinthians chapter 3 look at verse 11 if you will and likewise for the north side of length there shall be hangings of an hundred cubits long and his twenty pillars and their twenty sockets of brass the hooks of the pillars and their fillets of silver and for the breadth of the court on the west side shall be hangings of 50 cubits, their pillars 10, and their sockets 10. 50 cubits, 74 feet. And the breadth of the courts, the width of the courts, on the east side, eastward, shall be 50 cubits. 50 cubits again being 74 feet. The hangings of one side of the gate shall be 15 cubits. That's 22 feet. Their pillars 3 and their sockets 3. And on the other side shall be hangings, 15 cubits, their pillars 3, and their sockets 3. You've got adapters going into adapters. Basically, you've got uh, rope being used to hold this thing together. Uh, in the winters in the Middle East, it's very cold. They have tropical, uh, or they have sandstorms, and it was imperative to hold this thing down, the tabernacle, of course. Summertime, it was very hot, and it was imperative to keep the heat out. Going back to, uh, to the analogy that I used last week. Too hot. Curtains keep the sun out. Too cold, curtains keep the sun in. Twelve again, and for the breadth, the width of the courts on the west side shall be hangings of fifty cubits. Their pillars ten, and their sockets ten. And the breadth of the courts on the east side eastward shall be fifty cubits. Uh, the hangings on one side of the gate shall be fifteen cubits. Their pillars three, and their sockets three. And on the other side shall be hangings fifteen cubits. Their pillars three, and their sockets three. If you were to just uh, knock out one socket, or one hanging, it would collapse. Going back to, like for example, when uh, Simon Peter said to the Lord Jesus Christ, you won't be going to Jerusalem, you won't die for the sins of the world, you won't do this, you won't do that. And he turned around and said to Simon Peter, if I don't do what I'm going to do, nobody will be saved. But on top of that... He said, basically, what you are saying to me isn't coming from heaven. It's coming from Satan. Going back to the reality that saved people can uh, speak things they should not speak. But basically, the altar that you're reading about this morning is also known as the altar of burnt offering. It was the largest object in the entire complex. Located in the courtyard, of course. It's going to be bronze, not gold. And like I say, the colouring or the choice of material for the altar will be copied for the utensils and the accessories of course look at verse 16 
And for the gate of the court shall be an hanging of twenty cubits, of blue and purple and scarlet, and fine twinned linen, wrought with needlework, and their pillars shall be four, and their sockets four, batter curtains again. And here's an interesting thing. I had to visit the hospital this past week. A&E ward, we call it in the UK. In America, they call it the emergency room. And we call it the A&E, uh, emergency and uh, accident and emergency, excuse me. And it's always very interesting what you see at these places. It's been years since I went to uh, the A&E, as we call it, the emergency room. And I was there a few days ago. And I saw a lot of things, a lot of sick people. And I mean physically sick people. Uh, I saw a young person arrive. I wasn't sure if it was a boy or a girl, had taken an overdose, had to have their stomach pumped, and uh, a man in his mid-50s arrived, face was all cut, hands were cut, maybe slashed by his lover, I don't know, elderly couple in their 90s were needing uh, some help, the man had fallen down, uh, a couple of people had come, had come in with broken arms, broken legs, a lady arrived with her boyfriend, he pushed her through on a wheelchair, uh, and she had uh, one of those nail cutters st uh, sticking out to her left foot. Maybe three feet stuck nail. into her left foot. Nail gun. Uh, no, nail clipper. I'd cut her nails. Oh, right. And I watched this couple. And she wasn't cussing. She wasn't cursing. She was smiling. And I thought to myself this. Did you do that to yourself? Self-harm? Did he do it to you? Domestic violence? But what was really interesting was, and it's funny what the Lord shows you. It said on the sign, a uh, uh, triage, or triage, and this... Uh, triage is basically where you uh, you go before you see the doctors two or three cubicles but this is what was really interesting it said uh, due to abuse due to uh, basically violence and uh, people being attacked like nurses being attacked there's no doors no doors allowed only curtains and I thought of the curtains of the tabernacle and I thought the priests would go into the holy of holies only the priests would go into the holy of holies everybody else had to stay outside and going back to Matthew 27, when he died on the cross, it says how the veil was ripped right in half. And of course, you know that the veil uh, is a picture of God's glory. Uh, but behind the veil is a picture of Jesus Christ's flesh. Hebrews 10, uh, verse 20. And I watched these nurses seeing people, assisting people. A load of people were, were arriving with all sorts of physical and mental problems. But they weren't able to have doors because of the violence. Mm -hmm. Because of people arriving, shouting and screaming. So they had to have curtains. Very light curtains. And I thought of the tabernacle. No doors allowed. Although uh, Jesus Christ is referred to as the door. And also from uh, uh, 27, 16, we read about a gate. I am the door. And I watched all these people arriving. A lot of sick people, like I say. Nurses were very good trying to deal with people's issues. But so many sick people. And I thought this hospital... It's just like, in a sense, heaven. We all came to the Lord because we have a sin problem. But what was really depressing was when I first arrived, there was a huge rainbow flag. I mean, massive rainbow flag. About maybe 30 feet wide. Blown very proudly in the wind. And I thought nobody ever asked our opinion as taxpayers as to whether or not we want this flag flying outside of our hospital. Look at verse 16 again. And for the gate of the court shall be an hanging of 20 cubits of blue and purple, and scarlet, and fine twinned linen, wrought with needlework. Do you like to sew? Do you like to make clothing? Here, needlework is tied in with the design of the tabernacle. And their pillars shall be four, and their sockets four. So 20 cubits is 30 feet. So the gate of the court shall be an hanging of 20 cubits. That's around uh, 30 feet. Blue again, picturing heaven, purple picturing royalty, and scarlet picturing suffering, like the suffering animal that would die for you in your place. Get your hands on the animal, cut its throat. We saw that in Israel a few years ago. We saw that in Nazareth. We saw animals being lined up for the slaughter. It's not a very nice sight to behold, but it goes back to if you don't want the animal to die in your place, like the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, then you have to die for yourself, basically. That's what it comes down to, people. And I speak to people in the streets, and uh, a lot of young people, especially girls, don't like to think of animals uh, being uh, slaughtered. And a lot of these girls become vegetarians or vegans. You've got to watch that. Some vegans can become very religious and turn it into a, a religion within itself. You've got to watch that. But it comes down to either he dies for you, 
or you die for yourself. So scarlets can be used for suffering, also used interchangeably with purple, picturing royalty of course. Fine twinned linen, twinned being doubled of course, wrought with needlework, and their pillars shall be four, and their sockets four. Also pins, which we read about a few moments ago, are like stakes, which will be fastened to ropes to hold the uh, pillars that went around the court. Every time I think about the tabernacle, and I don't want to be crude, but when I think about the tabernacle, I think about it like a traveling circus, if you will. They have to travel from town to town. They have to erect it. They have to have pillars to hold the whole thing up, going back to how the church is built on pillars. And I gave you the verses from Galatians last week. We are built on the apostles, the prophets, and of course the Lord Jesus Christ. But here you've got pins also being used with horns, uh, going back to verse 2, and the horns would be used to hold the grating that would hang down the middle of the altar. You've got uh, fillets also being used as function rods to connect the holes and the pillars together. I don't really understand this. I'm not a carpenter, uh, but I can appreciate what is going on. I can appreciate the need uh, to, on the one hand, put this thing up pretty quickly, keep it up for a period of time and to bring it down to disassemble it and move it around and also be able to uh, reassemble it at a moment's notice. It's the Lord on the move. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. He tabernacled amongst us and we beheld his glory as of the only begotten of the Father full of grace and truth. Verse 17 and I'll close. All the pillars round about the court shall be filleted with silver. Their hooks shall be of silver and their sockets of brass. I'll give you one more verse 18. The length of the court shall be 100 cubits and the breadth 50 everywhere. And the height five cubits of fine twin linen and the sockets of brass. All the vessels of the tabernacle and all the, in, in all the service thereof and all the pins thereof. And all the pins of the court shall be of brass. Brass, brass, brass. So very briefly, allow me to say this, that the hanging was like a bar. You've got the candlestick, which was golden. And on top of that, there are seven parts to the candlestick. If you think about the seven spirits of God, Isaiah chapter 11, you see the bigger picture, if you will. The word of God is referred to as a lamp and a light. Psalm 119. The showbread pictures the Lord Jesus Christ. John chapter 6. I am the bread which came down from heaven. But on top of that, give us our daily bread. Going back to the uh, disciples' prayer. The veil... The Holy of Holies, the glory of God, which was hidden behind the veil, is a wonderful picture of Christ's flesh. The brass altar is also a type of Christ's atoning work. This altar uh, would have to last for an indefinite period of time, at least 40 years, as they travelled around the uh, wilderness. You've got a perimeter fence, like I said at the beginning of this uh, message, around the tabernacle, like a buffer zone, if you will. Sinners stay out, or sinners stay away. Now you are called, you are brought nigh by the blood of Christ. There are so many differences between the Old Testament and the New Testament. So you're not a dispensationalist. How do you explain that? We have no physical sacrifice today. We have no need to meet in a physical tent or a tabernacle. Our salvation was dealt with 2,000 years ago. So I think we will hold it there, uh, just basically taking our time to try and lay the foundation for the brass and altar it's a mystery the tabernacle of the lord but it's fascinating if you take the time to think about horns animals christ being a lamb or a ram being a male sheep and how the animals will be sacrificed and also from last week uh, we read about the uh, goat's hair and the ram skin also connected with the reinforcements of the tabernacle and again a ram picturing christ and a goat picturing Judas, the Judas goat. But we'll hold it there and return next week and try and drill a little deeper into this mysterious parts of Exodus chapter 27. Exodus chapter 27. And Father in heaven, we ask you to bless today's message, a difficult piece of the Old Testament to continue to work through the tabernacle. It's a mystery to most uh, non-Jews, even Jews, uh, non-religious Jews especially, will struggle to exegete parts of the old testament but lord we just pray for your blessing and we ask you to bless this continual study in jesus name amen, amen. exodus chapter 27 exodus chapter 27 let's 
Reread some of these verses again. And thou shalt make an altar of sheet and wood. The cross was wooden, of course. Five cubits long and five cubits broad. Five is a number for death. The altar shall be four square, and the height thereof shall be three cubits. Keep your hand there and go to Revelation chapter uh, 7. Revelation chapter 7. Oh, I thought about this this morning. I thought, yes, a good cross-reference. Look at verse 1. And after these things I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, not on the sea, nor on any tree. Go back to Exodus. And thou shalt make an altar of sheet and wood. Like I said, the cross was wood. Five cubits long and five cubits broad. Five being death again. The altar shall be four square. Four points, four parts to this rectangular object. The atonement covers the four corners of the earth. And the height thereof shall be three cubits. And thou shalt make the horns of it upon the four corners thereof. His horn shall be of the same. And thou shalt overlay it with brass. Horns going back to a male sheep, a ram. Picturing the Lord Jesus Christ, of course. And also Daniel picks up on this figurative language. Ram, horns, many horns. Antichrist has horns. But that's a whole different study for a whole different day. And thou shalt make his pans to receive his ashes. His ashes. And his shovels, and his basins, and his flesh hooks, and his fire pans. All the vessels thereof thou shalt make of brass. Gold, silver, and brass. Gold, silver, and bronze. And of course brass is, if you think of the bronze serpents back in Second Kings, which became a huge problem for the children of Israel. As the Son of Man must be lifted up from the earth, or as you will lift up the Son of Man from the earth. John chapter 3. All men that see the Son of Man shall be saved. In fact, keep your hand there. Go to John chapter 3. I slightly misquoted that. But of course, the Saviour is the antitype to the serpent back in 2 Kings chapter 18. and John chapter 3, the Lord Jesus Christ almost pictures himself as a type of the serpent. Another mysterious piece of scripture. John 3. 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpents in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Go back to Exodus chapter 27. The more you read the Bible, the more you see how circular it is on the one hand, mysterious on the other hand, and incredibly tricky. If I wasn't a saved man, if I was somebody with nefarious intentions, I could really twist this book. And I could teach that Jesus and the serpent, Jesus and Lucifer were brothers. I could teach that, the Mormons do. I could teach that Jesus Christ was a created being, the Jehovah's Witnesses do. I could teach that Jesus Christ was illegitimate, the Jews do. I could teach that Jesus Christ was, uh, was uh, only a prophet, the uh, Muslims do. All that, of course, goes to show that, say, little knowledge is a dangerous thing. And thou shalt make his pans receive his ashes, 27.3. And his shovels, and his basins, and his flesh hooks, and his fire pans. All the vessels thereof thou shalt make of brass. And thou shalt make for it a grate of network of brass. And upon the net thou shalt make four brass and rings, and the four corners thereof. Four rings, four corners of the earth. The atonement is a global atonement. He didn't just die for the Jews, he died for the Gentiles, he died for everyone. And everything, salvation is sufficient for everyone. But it's only efficacious for those that appropriate the atonement. Look at verse 5. And thou shalt put it under the compass of the altar beneath, that the net may be even to the midst of the altar. Some say that the blood of Christ went into the earth upon his death, which is probably true. And some archaeologists believe they have found the spot in Jerusalem where the blood went through or dripped through uh, into the lower parts of the earth. I'm not sure if that's overly so. I can think of several reputable, uh, reputable preachers that teach and affirm that to be so. But what we do know is that he died on a cross, picturing the altar here, verse 1. He bled. Without the shedding of blood, there was no remission of sins. Look at verse 6. And thou shalt make staves for the altar, staves of sheet and wood, and overlay them with brass. Overlay them with brass, sheet and wood. Narrow wood. The way to salvation is narrow. Broad is the way to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. Seven, and the staves shall be put into the rings, 
and the stave shall be upon the two sides of the altar to bear it, to hold it up. The cross had to be nailed, had to be fastened down. If a strong wind came along, technically, it could have been, or hypothetically, it could have blown over. If a strong wind had come along, hypothetically, it could have blown the tabernacle over. That's why if you ever go camping, you get some tent uh, pegs and you nail that thing down. A strong wind will blow it away. Heavy rain will collapse it. The tabernacle was the same. The cross had to be firm to the earth. Picturing son of man going back to Adam. But it wouldn't blow over. It couldn't crack. Going back to son of God. Relationship to God the Father of course. Hallow, verse 8. Hallow. Hallow be thy name. Hallow with boards. Thou shalt make it. Hallow with boards. Shalt thou make it. Hallow with boards. Shalt thou make it, as it will show thee in the mount, so shall they make it. I'm going to dictate to you, Moses, but your men will build the tabernacle. Jesus would preach the words of the Lord. Jesus was given the Spirit of God without measure. He that loves me keeps my words, John chapter 14. But his words were written down by the apostles. Moses for the Old Testament, Messiah for the New Testament. Moses for the Old Testament dictates the Plans, blueprints for the tabernacle. Messiah for the New Testament dictates his words which are written down by the apostles, of course. And thou shalt make the courts of the tabernacle for the south side southward. There shall be hangings for the court of fine twinned linen of a hundred cubits long for one side. And twenty pillars thereof and their twenty sockets shall be of brass. The hooks of the pillars and their fillets shall be of silver. The entire courtyard, incidentally, was around 150 feet by 75 feet. It's heaven on earth, basically. When Jesus Christ came, he preached both kingdoms. The kingdom of heaven is at hand, you better repent. The kingdom of God is at hand, you better repent. 20 pillars, verse 10, thereof, and their 20 sockets shall be of brass. Back to brass again. The brass and altar. The hooks of the pillars and their fillets shall be of the same. Hooks, nails, almost the same, but not quite, but the typology is pretty near. They pierced my hands and my feet. I was compassed about with dogs, Psalm 22. And here you got the same language from verse 5. Put it under the compass of the altar beneath. They compassed me about, Psalm 22, concerning the Jews, referred to as dogs, and uh, other unpleasant titles, denoting how apostate uh, Judaism was when Jesus came the first time Luke 18 says when he comes a second time will there be much faith on the earth much faith on the earth and of course the answer is almost zero look at verse 11 and likewise for the north side in length there shall be hangings of an hundred cubits long and his twenty pillars and their twenty sockets of brass the hooks of the pillars and their fillets of silver Silver, gold and brass. You can't improve on that. They will last indefinitely, at least 40 years. And of course the tabernacle would be replaced with the temple. A much larger building of course. Jesus Christ is the Lord of the temple. Our bodies, 1 Corinthians 3, 1 Corinthians 6, are the temple of the Holy Ghost. Look at verse 12 again. And for the breadth, width of the court on the west side shall be hangings. Of fifty cubits, their pillars ten, and their sockets ten. And the breadth of the courts on the east side, eastward, shall be fifty cubits. The hangings on one side of the gate shall be fifteen cubits, their pillars three, and their sockets three. And on the other side shall be hangings fifteen cubits, their pillars three, and their sockets three. And for the gate of the court shall be an hanging of twenty cubits of blue and purple and scarlet. Son of man, son of God, son of David, and fine twinned linen. The temple was ripped in twain. And of course, what would take place? Well, the priests would repair the ripped inner veil in the temple. And from 30 AD to 70 AD, it was business as usual. And I've always thought this, that during that 40-year period, referred to as a generation, Matthew 24, Almighty God gave the children of Israel a special dispensation. To prepare for the destruction of the temple. To prepare for Jews completely throwing the lot in with Jesus. Of course they would reject him. 
Matthew 27, they would reject God the Father, 1 Samuel chapter 8. And they would reject the Holy Ghost, Acts chapter 7. Wrought with needlework, picturing man's feeble involvement with the creation of the tabernacle. Going back to the kingdom of heaven, which the apostles would also preach. Matthew chapter 10, the kingdom of heaven is a physical kingdom. Signs and wonders, miracles and healings, contrast that to the kingdom of God. A spiritual kingdom. It's not physical, it's spiritual. Not the same. But during the thousand year reign, we will have both, of course. And their pillars shall be four, and their sockets four. Seventeen. All the pillars round about the court shall be filleted with silver. The hooks shall be of silver, and their sockets of brass. The length of the court shall be an hundred cubits, and a breadth fifty everywhere. And the height five cubits of fine twinned linen and their sockets of brass. All the vessels of the tabernacle, and all the service thereof, and all the pins thereof, and all the pins of the court shall be of brass. And he means brass. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. If you love me, keep my words. If you add to my words, Revelation 22. If you subtract from my words, Revelation 22, I will take your part out of the book of life, and I will... Put the plagues on you that are found over in Revelation. Had the children of Israel deviated just slightly with the creation of the tabernacle, the Lord would have probably destroyed them. Had the apostles added words to the Lord or taken words from the mouth of the Messiah, they too would have been in hot water. Look at verse 20. And thou shalt command the children of Israel that they bring thee pure oil, olive beaten for the light, to cause the lamp to burn always. Jesus Christ would light every man that cometh into the world. And of course, oil is a picture of the Holy Ghost. Keep your hand there and go to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. Strictly speaking, Hebrews complements Leviticus. And Revelation complements Daniel. But there's some very appropriate verses from Hebrews which... Uh, allow us to understand more as to this anointing. Hebrews 1, Hebrews 1, look at verse 8. But unto the Son he saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. Father speaking to the Son, and he's calling him God. A scepter of righteousness is a scepter of thy kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore God, even thy God, therefore the Father, even thy Father, God the Father, but of course Jesus Christ is Israel's father. Isaiah chapter 9. Hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. The father almighty God would anoint the son of God. Verse 8. God the son. Not just the son of God. But God the son. Never rob him of his full deity. Son of God. And also God the son. He would anoint him with the oil of gladness. It wasn't John the Baptist's job to do that. John the Baptist would physically baptize him. And when he did that, the Holy Ghost came upon the Lord Jesus Christ as a dove. And a voice spoke from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son. Hear ye him. Father, Son, and Spirit all working together at the same time. Thou hast loved righteousness. You have loved righteousness, past tense. If you think of any religious person, I mean any religious person on the face of the earth, going back as far as you want, if you really profile those religious people, if you read their biographies, I mean any of them, they don't love righteousness. I won't list all the infamous, notorious monsters going back thousands of years if necessary, but I mean all, all of these so-called good and the great didn't love righteousness. Jesus Christ never had, a, never had an impure thought a day in his life, never sinned, never wanted to sin a day in his life, unlike you and I. Thou hast loved righteousness, in reference to the Son, verse 8, and hated iniquity. It says over in the Psalms how God hates all workers of iniquity. How he is angry with the wicked every day. David would say how he hated the Lord's enemies. He would say how the Lord's enemies were his enemies. Could you imagine preaching that? Could you imagine being a preacher anywhere in Britain today or America or Europe, Far East, and getting up and saying, how many of you people hate the Lord's enemies? Let me see your hands. And how many of you people are going to stand with the Lord against his enemies? How many of you people are going to march for Jesus and come up against or stand against his enemies? Very few hands would go up, of course. Therefore God, even thy God. Now this goes back to relationship within the triune God, how the Son is in submission to the Father. 
1 Corinthians chapter 15. And one day he will go back into full submission to the Father. But be mindful of this, that right now we are in Christ. We are in Christ. So if we are in Christ, and Christ goes back into the Father, 1 Corinthians 15, we go back into the Trinity in a way that I don't quite understand. Therefore God, even thy God, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The Father is greater than I. Hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. More important than Solomon, he would say he was greater than Solomon, son of David, son of Joseph. Go back to Exodus chapter 27. So, oil uh, from verse 20 for the Old Testament was physical, literal oil to keep the light burning. All of the time, the light would never go out. Jesus Christ is the light of the world. We are to be imitators of the Lord Jesus Christ. And thou shalt command the children of Israel, not the church. I get sick and tired when I hear mainly lordship salvation, replacement theology preachers, run into the Old Testament and reading passages, not so much like this, but elsewhere and saying these apply to you and I live in today. They do not. The Ten Commandments were given to the children of Israel. Mm. And halfway through the Ten Commandments, you've got the Sabbath. And if you broke the Sabbath, if you didn't break bread or come together every Friday sundown to Saturday sundown, you were executed. How many Jews do you know around the world that would execute disobedient Jews? How about none? The Ten Commandments were given to the children of Israel. And I spent some time showing you that from chapter 19. Yes, Paul would cite uh, the Ten Commandments and he made that clear from first timothy chapter one and the law is good to bring a man to the cross but don't put the man back under the law once he is saved or put him back on the cross once he's being crucified with christ oil olive we would say olive oil but not quite oil olive beaten for the light to cause the lamp to burn always so the priest goes into the tabernacle he needs a light to see where he is going obviously the light is the menorah Seven parts to the menorah, picturing the seven spirits of the Lord. Isaiah 11, 21. In the tabernacle of the congregation, without the veil, which is before the testimony, Aaron and his son should order it from evening to morning before the Lord. The Jews count their days evening to morning. Going back to the creation week, we count our days morning to evening. Our days begin at midnight. A minute past midnight, you are in a new day. A minute past 6 p.m., the uh, day is beginning for the children of Israel. In the tabernacle of the congregation, without the veil, outside the veil, which is before the testimony, Aaron and his sons. Aaron, of course, is the first high priest, and we will profile him a little later on, of course. His sons, physical sons, biological sons, married men, incidentally. You won't find this bachelor priesthood in the Old Testament, it's one thing to not be married, but if you teach that as doctrine, if you force it on men not to marry like Catholic priests, or if you force it on women not to marry like Catholic nuns, that's wicked. And Paul says over in First Timothy chapter 4, that's demonic. It's one thing to choose to be single, but if you teach it, force it on people to be single in order to serve a so-called church, it is demonic. Aaron and his sons shall order it from evening to morning before the Lord, Jehovah Lord, or Jehovah God, of course. It shall be a statute forever unto their generations on the behalf of the children of Israel. Yes, that's true. But of course, the Jews would deviate over time. The Jews wouldn't keep the law, wouldn't keep the Old Testament. Going back to 2 Kings 18, verse 4, they would worship the serpent. And over time, that would become a stumbling block for the children of Israel. Uh, the cross today, or the cross symbol, is a Similar sort of a problem, uh, you think of most people around the world, they wear crosses on their clothing as a lucky charm, or like a fashion uh, symbol. It's worn by millions of people every day all over the world. Catholics will go one step further than that. They will venerate their crucifixes in the same way that apostate Jews did back in the Old Testament. When I was a Catholic, I remember going to a place called Aylesford, and I was there with family, and I was given a crucifix, uh, from a member of my family, now deceased, and the Archbishop uh, was at this Marian shrine in, in uh, Aylesford, Kent, Kent and uh, he came over, spoke to the family, knew Patrick very well, and uh, my relative who's now dead said to the Archbishop, would you please bless 
his crucifix and he waved his hands about like a magician, did a so-called blessing, it made no difference to me. I was wicked, I was deplorable, I was disgusting before I got saved. Still am, of course. I'm a saved sinner. And I look at those years as wasted years. Mm. Wasted years, going to Mass, serving Mass, going to Catholic schools, meeting priests, listening to their dirty jokes, mostly alcoholics, uh, doing their stuff, which the world do. And I do enjoy a good joke, but not all of the time. And all those years of witnessing Catholicism, knowing priests and nuns, and yes, there were pious priests and pious nuns, but so what? There were pious Buddhists, uh, there were pious Christadelphians and Scientologists, big deal. But this uh, ongoing sacrifice, referred to here forever unto their generations, on the behalf of the children of Israel, would only be uh, relevant if they walked with the Lord. And they wouldn't walk with the Lord. They turn their idols, they turn their objects, I should say, into idols. And it's my belief that the Jews, during Jesus' day, worshipped the temple. Very proud of the temple. They would swear by the gold in the temple more than the one whose house it was, being Jehovah. So, allow me to say this and I'll wrap up chapter 27. What God wants in essence is a blood sacrifice. I'm sure you can see that very clearly. No counselling theory like Scientology or Eastern mysticism like Zen Buddhism or modern ideas of spirituality like the Baha'i, for example, can remove any kind of a sin that you have or will ever have. Voodoo, witchcraft, is also out. He wants blood. Go to Leviticus chapter 17. He wants blood. We don't always understand that, and yet we should do because we are a bloody people. Uh, the minute our blood is off, we are off. It's like most of our body is water. If we don't drink, we die. And if our blood isn't pumping, we die. Leviticus 17, 11 again. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, precious blood of the Lamb. And I have given it to you upon the altar, 27, 1. To make an atonement, a covering for your souls. For the Old Testament, physical. New Testament, spiritual. And yet Christ physically bled. You understand, of course. But we claim it now in a spiritual sense. And yet it's physical. Can you understand that? I can't understand that. But that's what the Bible teaches. Listen, you can't understand... You can't explain. You don't fully understand biology. I put it to you. Physics, chemistry, economics, British foreign policy, Chinese culture, Indian and Pakistani relations. You can have a passive understanding of those subjects, but you can't really fully understand it. How about electricity? How about gravity? How about the way the universe really functions? You don't really understand that. You learn it at school, university. You're taught it by your professors. And you assume what they are telling you to be so, is so. You're taught at school about the Big Bang Theory, which incidentally will take place. Second Peter chapter 3 hasn't yet taken place, but you take it by faith. You weren't there when the Big Bang took place, allegedly. You weren't there when evolution kicked in, but you're taught it in universities. You have to believe it by faith. And if you don't, you are pushed out. You're punished. You're penalized. I don't understand all of the Bible. I don't understand half of the Bible, but I read it. I take it by faith. For the life of the flesh is in the blood. Going back to get yourself an animal, cut its throat, put the blood onto the altar, and every Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies with the blood and put it on the mercy seat. Now the Jews are in a real bind. For 2,000 years, no priest, no temple, no sanctuary, no nothing. And every year, religious Jews come together and they have their Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement, and they ask to be forgiven. It won't work. It doesn't work. And just think how many Jews have perished since 70 AD, gone to hell forever. And when we think about Catholics and pagans and Scientologists, like I say, and Buddhists and the Baha'i and the Voodoos, witches and Wiccas and Freemasons and all that crowd, but how many Jews have perished? How many Jews have rejected Jesus since 30 AD when he died on a cross? 70 AD when the temple went down. How many Jews have perished? Millions. And a future project of mine is to put some material up to respond to a revolting rabbi who attacks my saviour, attacks the Apostle Paul. Has a very popular presence online and I've been monitoring this, monitoring this rabbi for a period of time. Nobody's come up against him. Nobody's challenged this rabbi. Well, I will down the line when I get some time. But those Jews have got no sacrifice. They've got no atonement. The Muslims have no atonement. They hope that Allah will be good to them. And even in Islamic beliefs, it is taught that you can go to paradise 
if you are good, of course, and after a while, be taken out of paradise and be put into hell. And then if you're lucky to go back into paradise. Look at it again. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, interlinked. And I have given it to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your souls. For it is the blood, the blood, the blood, the blood that maketh an atonement for your souls or for your soul. So if you think of Hebrews chapter 10 or elsewhere in Hebrews where it says it's not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats could save, could take away our sins, could cover your sins, but couldn't take away your sins. And even Jews today don't physically sacrifice animals. I mean, not physically, not on a mass scale. It may be done privately in back streets or certain synagogues, but I mean in Jerusalem. Yes, I know they are ready to go rebuild the temple, but for 2,000 years, there's been no temple. There's been no tabernacle. There's been no testimony. There's been no priest system. Those Jews have perished. You may say, how about old Jonah? They repented, yes, but they were Gentiles. And yes, Jonah went to the Ninevites, told them to repent. And it says how they repented. And the Lord saved them, pardoned them, based on their faith in him. But they were Gentiles. Jonah was a Jew. Jews in the Old Testament had to sacrifice. Yes, they received imputation like Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, of course. But they were in a system which demanded ongoing sacrifices. For the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that maketh an atonement for the soul. Go back to Exodus. So whatever your religion is, if your religion doesn't have a blood-soaked saviour, you're in trouble, basically. God wants to see the blood. If you think of elsewhere in Exodus, during the clash with uh, Pharaoh, the Lord would say to the children of Israel, put the blood above the doorposts. Picturing the cross, of course, and when I see the blood, I will pass by. You can't miss that. That's a picture of the Lord on the cross. A wonderful picture of Jesus Christ hanging on the cross, blood everywhere. And when the Lord saw the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, and when Christ would say, it is finished, it was finished. Now you can't beat that. You cannot beat that. Jews have no sacrifice, like I say, have no saviour, don't want our saviour. They don't want a sacrificial system anymore. I've seen people, and I've heard people, and I've observed people over the years, turn their noses up at this. They find this repulsive. <laughs> We have a guy in the UK, a Anglican bishop called Wrights, somewhere in Durham, a very popular uh, archbishop in his clerical circles. And he said this basically, that the teaching of substitutionary atonement is repulsive. And I thought, that's fine. If that's what you think, you can perish. You won't be saved by your baptism. You won't be saved, Mr. Wright, Bishop Wright. How they love their titles. And yes, I know bishop is biblical, don't worry. But some of these guys are called archbishops, which puts them above Jesus. Because Jesus is called the bishop of our souls. You've got these archbishops putting themselves above Jesus. But if you don't want to receive substitutionary atonement, if that's abhorrent to you, that's repulsive to you, if you don't like the idea of blood everywhere, if you think you can make it on your own, you're welcomed to it. But I'm reading Exodus, and I give the Lord thanks and glory for carrying me and helping me through some difficult passages... As we continue down the line, looking at the rest of this book, I see blood all over the place. I see Moses putting blood physically on people, physically on the Jews, picturing Jesus Christ's physical blood being put to our account. Now, again, I don't understand that. I cannot understand that, but I can believe it. You know, you may say this to me, I can't understand it, and therefore I won't receive it. Then you are a fool. There's things you don't understand in this life, you switch your television on it comes on you switch your phone on it comes on you switch your laptop on it comes on signals are beamed to your laptops your iphones your televisions your cell phones you can speak to somebody straight away like i'm doing this morning through the internet i don't really understand how all this works do you but i believe it i take it by faith and i hope you do as well Twenty-seven, twenty-one, and i'll close in the tabernacle of the congregation without the veil now you could say this that the jews for the old testament are people in the wilderness, the church is a picture of people in the wilderness. We are a called out people. Before which is, before the testimony, Aaron and his sons shall move it from evening to morning. At best you could say this, that for, uh, for the day the church is a picture of the Jews in the Old Testament. Or the Jews in the Old Testament are a picture of the church today. They had a high priest and his sons that were leading them. We have elders today. So it's, it's similar but not quite the same. It shall be a statute forever. Unto their generations, 
on the behalf of the children of Israel. Yes, as long as they would walk with Jehovah, stay faithful to Jehovah, he would walk with them, stay faithful to them. The moment we stop walking with Jesus and stop being faithful towards Jesus, he will basically pull away from us like he would do with Samson. And on one occasion, Samson thought his Lord was still with him. He had his power and might, his crowning glory, only to realize that the Lord had departed from him. A picture of a Christian losing their relationship, not their salvation, but their relationship with the Lord. And at that stage, it was too late for Samson. It could be too late for Christians as well, unless they confess their sins, First John chapter 1. But here, it's a physical, ongoing sacrifice. The priest would never sit down, whereas Jesus Christ paid it all, once and for all. Sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, and he would say, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. It is finished. It is done. It's closed. It's completed. And that's why, if you're not a Christian, who are you? What are you? What are you trusting? And I have no idea, but we are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. The physical Lamb of God who died for our sins, all of the Old Testament prophets and practices and sacrifices and so on and so forth, were all picturing the one who would one day come and he's been and gone. And if you don't know him, you need to know him. If you haven't received him, you need to receive him. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. You must be born again.